This is a Little Empire podcast. Visit us at littleempirepodcast.com and on Twitter at Little Empire Pod. Did you at any time urge former FBI Director James Comey in any way, shape, or form to close or to back down the investigation into Michael Flynn? And also, as you look back... No. Next question. Next question. From the Politics Podcast News Desk in Tampa, Florida, currently spinning along the Tampa to New Zealand axis around which the globe rotates, I am Jeb Lund, and with me as always is Tim Bat. Tim, how are you doing? I'm very well, and I'm coming to you from my proxy location of Sydney, Australia. I am a Kiwi abroad right now, ah, you and fucked our it. cousins you, to the north. You, you, I, I didn't fuck it, man. We're like less than a minute into this, and you've already done me like that. Hey, you got to learn to roll, bro. You got to you got to take those second city lessons to heart. I, it's I'm, all about riffing and scatting. Yeah, well, comedy might be yes and, but uh, uh, journalism is no, but. <laughs> no, but I'm right, and if you've got a conflicting opinion, then uh, we're going to battle for sources, and I'm always coming out on top. Jeb, it's good to hear your voice, buddy. How Likewise. are you? Um, I'm I'm good. I you know I'm I'm just I'm podcasting up today. I got one done. Uh, you know why not? As soon as I get off the phone with you, I'm just going to start another. Like you know, try and stop me. Just, the ball is rolling. There's a lot going on at the moment. Um, in kind of reverse order of what we're probably going to talk about today. Uh, there's bad news for net neutrality, good news for people who hate Roger Ailes. That's a very dark way of approaching that. Um, but I mean, this, what good new, good I had previously, pe- sorry, good news yeah? for people who hate bad news. That's, that's what it should be. Good news for people who hate bad news. Yeah. Nice. There we go. We'll roll with that. Um, and what I previously referred to as like a slow moving train wreck, which is the Trump administration, is now a really fast moving train wreck. Um, there seems to be this constantly evolving scandal. And it's an interesting thing where it was kind of like, whoa, he's doing all these crazy things. It's one scandal after another. And now finally, one has been big enough to stick around for more than a week. And it's the Russia investigation and what the connections are. And I mean, we're going to attempt to semi-summarize what is happening in this moment, but it will probably change between now and whenever you hear this. It'll probably change between now and the end of us talking today, Jeb. But essentially, the latest piece of the puzzle um, that we have from the news is a special counsel has been uh, put forward by the Republican-controlled Senate. Is that the re- the correct parlance for this? Uh, so Rod Rosenstein, who is the uh, deputy attorney general, named a special counsel because, and he named it because the attorney general Jeff Sessions has technically recused himself from any role in the Russia, uh, the DOJ Russia investigation, because he lied before Congress when being grilled by Al Franken, actually about. Uh, his contacts with the the Russian foreign minister, uh, Sergei Kislyak, who had uh, spoken to him in his office and I think spoken to him in Cleveland. Um, it was on two occasions that he had contact with him that he did not admit to uh, that were then uh, revealed after his confirmation had gone through. So Rosenstein names the special prosecutor or you can say special counsel. It's pretty much inter- interchangeable. The only thing it's not is independent counsel. So if you're thinking about Ken Starr, it's not the same beast doesn't work the same right. way anymore and the man who has been named is a former fbi director himself of course a lot of the reason why this is hotted up so much is because uh of of the firing of the um, previous fbi director so 
uh, what's his name? Rob. I've heard him called Robbie Three Sticks. Uh, yeah, uh, Robert Mueller the uh, Third. Uh, he was uh, uh, named a, a FBI director under uh, George uh, W. Bush, and then he continued his his term was extended under Obama. Uh, and I, he was originally like he had a I think another uh, nomination under uh, Clinton in the the DOJ. So like he's got the imprimatur of three different presidents and a bipartisan. Uh, yeah. uh, pedigree and general esteem across the aisle. So one of the things that he did that uh, you may have seen this in the New Yorker, Jane Mayer uh, had a story that he, uh, uh, Bob Mueller stood up at a dinner party when everybody had basically been shunning the uh, a couple of these attorneys who were defending um, 9-11 defendants. And he stood up and gave a toast to them. And this sort of like at the height of, of, um, you know, we've got to fight back with every tool, damn the law kind of paranoia. And then he was also one of the people who came forward and said the uh, the United States is basically abusing its surveillance capacity uh, under uh, W. Bush. So he's got a, a pretty good uh, track record of being mindful of the Constitution and the law uh, with, you know, like as, as, as much <laughs> Which as will you, make you can for expect. a lovely departure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like he's still look, he's still a cop, right? Like, <laughs> so. Uh, the yeah. the whole like it, it's really bizarre to watch America the American left um, or American liberals it's not really the left kind of going like hey we have to defend the integrity of our vast unaccountable domestic intelligence apparatus like oh people- man <laughs> it has been so amazing to watch and listen to the mental gymnastics that the left is doing at the moment to try and reconcile its position on James Comey um, because like. I mean, first of all, for people on the extreme left and, and you know, um, certain parts of their consciousness, which I would put myself, who are just like by default kind of anti-authoritarian and will hate anyone who's at the top of an administration's, uh, or, or the top of like an intelligence gathering apparatus, something like the CIA or FBI. I don't think good men rise to the top of those sorts of organizations or seek out power at the high level of those sorts of organizations. Uh, not only that, but in particular, James Comey's decision with how he treated the Hillary Clinton emails, which ostensibly is the reason that has been given by Trump for his firing. Um, so that, that pissed off all of the liberals because, uh, a lot of people believe that that's what cost Hillary Clinton the election. And now he has been made a martyr of the Trump administration. He's been nicked. So now the left is sort of rushing to his aid and defense. And I mean, for all the kind of um, bullshit that Trump did throw when he fired him, if he had a kind of stayed the course with this one narrative that, that James Comey did get fired because of his treatment of Hillary Clinton, you and I talked about this in the last episode when it had just happened, the fucking balls on Trump to use that as a reason. But if he had stuck the landing on it and not wavered from that, it would have been so interesting to try and watch all of these uh, left politicians, all these Democrats trying to go, yeah, yeah, we did want him fired, but not right now and not by you and not at the moment. It's like a way harder thing to do. And Trump kind of did create this not perfect but pretty interesting and surprisingly strong platform for people to have to attack him at and then undid his own good work uh, in an interview that he conducted with Lester Holt where he revealed that he was absolutely thinking of the Russia investigation at the time of firing 
uh, James Comey. And not only that, but he also revealed that firing James Comey was not contingent on the advice that he received from his Attorney General, uh, Jeff Sessions, and the Assistant Attorney General as well, even though that's what he uh, listed in the letter that was the public notification that he had been fired. So, like, Trump, he almost tripped over a smart political play and then fucking 45 seconds later, foofed it again. Yeah, and then and sort of, like, to further add another twist to this one, uh, Rosenstein spoke in a skiff. He briefed uh, the, the... He answered questions from all senators in attendance today who wanted to ask him questions just and, explain and, what a skiff is real quick as well uh, it's, it's a secure information facility like it, that's not what the acronym is for it's basically like you can make it uh you know you can have portable ones the uh, the obama administration traveled with one that they would set up in any hotel room it's basically like a really big faraday cage that doesn't let any kind of monitoring in so you can't hear in it you can't penetrate it with like laser you know mics yeah you can't it's uh, like airplane mode for a room for any device Yes. And, and so like it, basically that this is why when Trump and, and everybody when uh, when they had a, uh, the Japanese prime minister Shinzo Abe at uh, Swamp Versailles uh, and they were showing him details of of uh, North Korea's missile launch. You know, that's why people were so aghast is like there, there was a you know, the Secret Service has sort of mobile skiff technology that could go into a room in Mar-a-Lago with that set up and instead they were looking at this shit and illuminating it with their Blackberries and iPhones in a public room. So uh, anyway, this, this is what Rosenstein went into to answer these questions sort of like in camera. And uh, they asked him when you were drafting the memo, uh, you know, Donald Trump has said that he fired uh, James Comey on your recommendation. Then he later told Lester Holt, actually, I was always planning on firing him when you drafted this memo for the reasons why you would fire James Comey. Did you know he was going to be fired? And he said he knew the day before he drafted it. Yeah, this bit confused <laughs> me, and I haven't quite followed it correctly. So, so what is the accusation there that the the assistant attorney general had advanced knowledge from where exactly that the attorney sorry that the FBI director was about to be fired? Well, he knew he knew that the president desired to to fire Comey and that the purpose of drafting the letter was uh, not to weigh the pros and cons or, you know, here is an argument for firing him, you know, because you, you, know, you do kind of like do these moot kind of briefs like, OK, if I were to fire a guy, what kind of reasons would you give me? Yeah. Uh, and, OK. And so the, so the reason why that's important is because it's putting an outcome before the evidence gathering. It's 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 the Iraq thing. It's going, here's what we want the outcome to be. Now go and find me reasons to justify it rather than receiving information apropos of nothing from your attorney general and then making a decision based on that. Well, I mean, I, you know, that isn't necessarily unethical. I mean, you're just gaming things out on like, how is it politically going to play for us? I'm sure, you know, the uh, Obama uh, administration had some briefing papers on like, what would happen if we fired Hillary? You know? Like yeah, but this does <laughs> contradict the narrative that the Trump administration were put, was putting forward, which is why it's sort of relevant and important that uh, the assistant attorney general Rosenstein knew a day before he was getting fired. Is and that it, kind of like, is that why that's relevant? Well, I'm just it, trying to unpick why oh, yeah, this no, is irrelevant, but you're of right. I mean, a couple of reasons. So there, there's that, right? So it automatically, you know, Trump wasn't misspeaking when he was bragging to Lester Holt. It was always my intention to fire him. It shows that he had developed the, you know, the, the intention to do this. And it also shows that Rosenstein can't say like, well, this was just sort of like a moot court argument. I was just giving him details. He knew the purpose of it. 
and he didn't say anything and he didn't do anything about it. So it kind of questions, uh, kind of consonant with, with uh, a piece that came out in the New York Times by Eric Schmidt, I think, uh, and with, uh, what's his name, Whittles, Wh- Whitt- Wittis, um, guy who runs the Lawfare blog, who is friends with James Comey and, and was giving some background of how Comey had processed this. It raises the question of like how independent Rod Rosenstein is going to be because if he knew his job was to be a hatchet man and he didn't protest, is it because he felt that the president was automatically kind of like just a priority within, you know, like acceptable boundaries? Or is he a survivor who is going to find a way to navigate the shoals of of uh, Trump's temper and, and outrage from uh, the Democratic minority in Congress and kind of, you know, bend... Uh, uh, his actions, you know, hereabouts, uh, maybe, you know, not unethically, but really getting kind of close to those, uh, those dangerous waters. Uh, so it's kind of a question of like where his, his autonomy is because, uh, the, the special prosecutor, the special counsel, uh, uh, Robert Mueller reports to him, uh, and, and Rosenstein does have latitude to fire him at any time or to deny him resources or to tell him that his investigatory, uh, push in a certain direction is a waste of time. The evidence doesn't bear it out. He needs to focus here. So the question yeah. of like now, where his spine is I, is important. I know that the the special uh, counsel hasn't been used that many times previously. And in fact, am I right in saying that it's a, a based on a set of laws that was only drafted up and enacted in 1999? No. Uh, well, yes and no, right? So we've had special counsels going back to the Grant administration. Um, so there was a, uh, the whiskey ring, and then it was used again in Teapot Dome. Uh, it was used a couple other times. The next biggest one that you really think of is Watergate, then um, uh, the Iran-Contra uh, uh, affairs. Uh, what happened after Watergate, because Nixon fired Archibald Cox, or he basically kept firing people until somebody would fire Archibald Cox, Um mm. Uh, they they set up the independent uh, uh, counsel law. And then so that's what, when you think of Ken Starr, you think of independent counsel. What it did was it preserved uh, the, the, the autonomy of an investigation into the president by uh, naming, a, you know, the independent counsel via a three-judge panel that then gave him virtually unlimited brief. Um, they didn't have to turn in the results at any given time. They didn't have Pardon me. They didn't have to uh, hew to a certain budget and they could kind of go anywhere. And so uh, that law lapsed in 1999. Nobody wanted to renew it because right. um, Iran-Contra had spread so far afield and caught so many crimes that, you know, thankfully, uh, Poppy Bush was able to pardon so many people out of. Uh, and then the the uh, Republican minority really twisted the arms uh, of a lot of chicken shit Democrats in the Congress to water down the findings of that report. Uh, it was pretty egregious. Then what you saw with Clinton was we got to Monica Lewinsky through Whitewater, through Travelgate. Um, w- there was an independent counsel, and he concluded there is nothing here. There's nothing I can charge the president with. And the Republicans said, well, we're going to fire him until we find a-, a person to replace him with who will find something. Then they hired Ken Starr. And then years later, you wind up with the dress. And I don't know what the definition of is is. And then. A year after that, the law lapsed because uh, Ken Starr was, you know, basically just sort of uh, he, he was going all over the place. Uh, and 
turn, you know, turned up all this evidence that led to an impeachment, didn't lead to a conviction in the Senate because it was partisan bullshit. And then Ken Starr, the Puritan who was so aghast by this, then went on to preside over Baylor University, which now is up to like its 60th rape cover up. I feel like we've diverted a little bit, but <laughs> Sorry, this, just... this has been a law on the books for a long time that sort of provisions of which sunseted in 1999 and were changed a little bit at that point. Yeah. So like what happened in 99 was they basically they, they put the the ability to kind of like convene or, or name a special uh, prosecutor back under the DOJ. So it's under the aegis of the attorney general, in this case, Session, who is recused. So it falls to Rosenstein. But mm. Rosenstein can fire the guy, although in this case, he probably will not. And, and there, that's a twist. But uh, Trump can fire him. Uh, yeah, and and there's sort of the straight laws and reporting line for this, and then there's the politics of it. Um, the fact that Robert Mueller has been named as the person who, as you rightly point out, is this guy of, um, you know, sort of uh, great repute from both sides of the aisle. He is the only FBI director since Hoover who's had um, more than a 10-year term because there is a term limit um, on that position, which happened as a result of... Um, Obama decision that he made because there were two other senior positions I can't remember what they were it was like the head of the CIA and another uh, maybe the NSA or something like that were also being replaced at the same time and he needed some sort of con some huge position of intelligence gathering to have a bit of continuity through that period so kept him on for an additional two years um, and just like an interesting little um, quirk of his history as well is Robert Mueller was brought on a week before 9-11 to be the FBI director. So that was his introduction into the role. And he managed to, uh, on the fly, um, sort of grab the reins of that organization and change it uh, into a way where they could reposition their resources and deploy um, personnel to counter terrorism, whereas before it was dealing with a lot more sort of uh, different internal threats and mm -hmm. bank robberies and things like that. Um, but it, it seems like for Trump to be able to fire Robert Mueller would be, I mean, we say everything's untenable and it's happened so far anyway, but I mean, <laughs> let's just try saying it again. It would be pretty fucking batshit for Trump to try and touch this guy now, right? Yeah, and, and I think, honestly, like, I think Rosenstein naming Mueller is kind of a fuck you because Trump and, and the whole White House communication staff put it on him for the Comey firing. Like, well, you know, he brought us this draft that said, you know, here's why you should fire him. So we did it on his recommendation. And especially if he knew a day ahead that they were going to do it anyway and they were just looking for uh, cover and then to put it on him and see if they could get away with it. I imagine that would really piss you off. And so yeah. he needed to cover his ass in a way. And I think, he, you know, this is like... The way this happened, there, there's so many fuck you elements to it. The, the White House wasn't given notification of uh, the, the fact that the order, uh, you know, commissioning Mueller as special prosecutor had been signed until 30 minutes before it was, you know, the, the world was going to be told. So they only got 30 minutes of prep. He picked this. Oh, I didn't know that. He picked this august name, right, that has so much bipartisan respect that it's almost like, go ahead and fire him. See what happens. <laughs> yeah. Right? So it's. And the thing is, but too, that's like, the whole point, right? Like that's that's what you want in a special prosecutor, someone who is beyond reproach in the eyes of the public, no matter what your political leaning is. That is precisely the kind of person you want in that role, someone who's untouchable. 
Right. And and the other thing, too, is like Rosenstein, because Trump allegedly, you know, did it on his uh, on on like Rosenstein's advice and then changed his story and then might have been planning all along to do it to shut up and stop the Russia investigation. That then makes Rosenstein potentially a co-conspirator in obstruction of justice. So he needs to, you know, he needed to name a special prosecutor just because his his role and judgment is is tainted and he needed to recuse himself every bit as much as Sessions did. So right. he's he's not going to fire. I would be stunned if he fired Mueller. And and it seems as if he picked like the one person that almost everybody, you know, even the idiots in the Trump White House who don't understand mm. how shit works would go like, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I just we like, should lay hands off of this guy. Hey, let me ask you a question, Jeb. How do you feel about the fact that um and I'm gonna be borrowing some Breitbart talking points for a second, the fact that we haven't seen evidence of this James Comey memo, which he supposedly wrote uh on the day of him meeting up with Trump for dinner, where there's these two conflicting reports of the conversation that they had. Um Comey, and we know this by the journalists' accounts who have claimed to have seen this document that James Comey has written, um, according to their version, according to James Comey's version of events, he Trump asked Comey for his loyalty and to uh, let go of this investigation into Mike Flynn on the basis that Mike Flynn was a good guy. And uh, according to um, Trump, that was... Not sort, I think. I'm not even 100% sure on what the their version of events is, but there is a confliction there. So firstly, can you fill in the gaps on what I can't remember about what the Trump um, version of how that conversation or dinner went? And also, what do you think about the absence of us having cited this supposed memo so far, but so much stock being put into it? Well, okay. So the, the, the Trump narrative is that... He, you know, thrice he asked uh, Comey if he were under investigation and thrice uh, Comey in the garden at Gethsemane denied him. Um, and uh, anyway, like, so yeah, he he, uh, he asked, am I under investigation? Comey reassured him three different times he wasn't. And then he got fired because what he did to Hillary Clinton was bad, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Comey's assertion is that he fired, uh, basically he filed a, you know, a daily briefing uh, or a memorandum immediately upon leaving his his meeting with Trump. And in fact, he was in, in, in some of these cases doing it in his car, like just because the stuff was so fresh and he couldn't take notes and he didn't want to record yeah. it. Um, yeah. Like his his story hasn't changed. He hasn't come out. You know, he's let surrogates uh, promote it. But like there are, yeah. there are the Republican, like why have we not seen this document is is actually already abutting one of their other talking points, which is, uh, well, you know, in, in, we should shut down the, the Senate and the House investigations into this because... Uh, uh, Mueller's investigation and his subpoena power is stronger than these congressional panels and uh, people are not going to want to cooperate with an uh, with us in public about an ongoing investigation that uh, for like ethical reasons they shouldn't comment on so uh, we we shouldn't like we shouldn't even do these things because we're not going to get anything important and uh uh, you know, people will be bound not to cooperate. At the same time, they're saying like, "Well, where's James Comey's memorandum? It's part of a fucking ongoing investigation." <laughs> like, so that's the. But the- it's the fact that all these journalists have said that they have seen it, and I, I don't doubt that whatsoever. But I just think like there is something about the Russia hysteria that's kind of gripping America at the moment. 
uh, and the fact that so much stock is being put into this document that we haven't cited firsthand yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of other good examples of sort of like phantom documents that everybody kind of is is aware of. Um, I'm trying. Those to eleven right pages now. about Saudi Arabia from the 9/11 report. Yeah, although nobody, we've never seen like the level of of detail of of you know uh, the president asked me if I would be loyal and if I could drop this. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that is that is an oddity, but I mean, it, it's just like it, because as someone who is a political journalist, like from that point of view, is that something that bothers you at all that the public has been so captured and that emotions are running so high based on a document that hasn't been cited firsthand, or are you pretty comfortable with that being the case? It's just, it, it kind of concerns me about the direction we're all heading in, in our news consumption and how much evidence we need to get really whipped into a frenzy these days. Well, I mean, uh, I guess I'm not that worried about it because the, you know, everything about Trump demanding loyalty from people and him asking for that and prizing that first and, you know, competency second. In a way, he's very Clintonian that way. Um, yeah. But that, you know, that isn't new. That's very old. Um, and I don't I think... I get that it's congruent. I totally do get that it's congruent. And for the record, like, I 100% believe that this memo exists. And I also believe that Comey's account is totally right. But it's more just this kind of philosophical thought experiment about like should we be putting so much of our collective mental resources and energy into something based on a document that we haven't seen out in the public yet well okay i mean so the other thing is like i you know i was kind of curious about this i was tempted to go back and listen to whatever episode we did was most proximal to comey's addressing congress and seeing how pissed we were at him because i like to think that i (laughs) i my take on him has been consistent the whole way through that this was a bureaucrat covering his ass and that that's who this guy is. And I think if you, you look at, you know, his sort of history uh, under the Bush administration with the, the Ashcroft uh, memo, and then with the, uh, uh, with the, the, you know, the last minute update on Anthony Weiner and Huma Abedin and, and Clinton. And then this, I mean, it just seems like this guy behaves the same way every time. And maybe he's a little bit of a chicken shit, but he's consistent. So I'm okay with, mm. with speculating from there. I mean, my, my attitude like is still, you know, Russia is not going to save you. Impeachment is not going to save you. Uh, this conspiracy is not going to save you. All the real problems are still going to be there on the ground to people who are poor and can't sit all day, like refreshing their Twitter feed and watching MSNBC. Yeah. So like, I'm not really pinning shit on this, but like, I feel like it's probably real. It probably says exactly what we think it says. And it's probably, you know, as like speculate, you know, the, the unseen document is still as probative as the, the actual seen one, which is not until we get some things corroborated by other people. Cause it is going to be a, he said, he said, he said, regardless. Mm. Um, I want to throw another question at you, just kind of a more fun one. Uh, and, and, and I am stealing this, uh, from another podcast. I can't remember. It might've been, uh, 538 <laughs> or something else, but I want to ask you, Jeb, what, how do you think, like, which of the following options do you think is the most likely? Do you think that Trump's going to be able to, um, remain in power and see out his four years? Or do you think he will a die, B quit, C get impeached or, uh, D the 25th amendment will be enacted and we will possibly get president Pence, but more likely um, president 
Paul Ryan or perhaps Orrin Hatch. I, I think it's it's I think he either serves out a, a term or he quits, but I don't think either of the other two are gonna happen. And I think it really it's gonna depend on the the attitude of the Republican Congress whether he quits. Uh, because if there's no threat of impeachment and, it, it, and, and, you know, it's, it's like, it, it comes down to an obstruction of justice charge and the people around him were nefarious, uh, you know, the Republican Congress is going to have every incentive to demand their resignation or firing and leaving him in place. Because the only other option is like, uh, you know, you, you clean house and you install Paul Ryan, who has the, you know, the nation is not going to like him. Uh, and they will take a, a battering in, in the midterms. They're not going to have, you know, they're going to have a lame duck president would be my I kind of think that's a given no matter what happens. Now, here's a question that's just occurring to me now. If they roll Trump now, if Trump steps down like today, is there, and it's kind of hard to take a long-term view of this right now while we're in what appears to be the eye of the storm right now. Do you think that there is a potential way that they have enough time to spin this into some sort of victimization story? Because if Trump can stand down, does that stop certain aspects of the investigations that are going on into his connections with Russia? And can they, at least in the eyes of enough people, turn Trump into being a victim of this witch hunt, which is the new um, catchphrase that he and his surrogates are using? Is there a way for them to spin this that he has been this historical victim of the left and centrist who didn't have the gall to see government really change? I think they would. They might try it with almost anybody else. I don't think they can do it because he'll fuck it up, right? Like, <laughs> the, you know, if 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 he's out of office and all he has yeah. to do is resent being an ex-president, that motherfucker is not yeah. going to stop talking, and he's going to blow every so talking point they try to engineer. When he's president, they have no choice but to do what he says, right? Like the the whole idea that we have, you know, three branches of government to balance for, you know, liberty and justice, right? Like that goes out the window when your guy is in charge, right? So, and, and your party doesn't expect you to do anything but obey. So they can kind of, you know, they can do these sort of half-assed talking points and kind of go like, hmm, what are we going to do? And, and uh, you know, you can already see how half-hearted they are about this shit. Like they, they, the only talking points they, they really kind of keep hammering at are like, well, why don't we, why don't we prosecute these leakers? And yeah, you know, like, well, I, th- we think that, you know, this, this is an attempt to distract from how successful the president's agenda has been. And we can't, you know, it's like, it's like Bill Belichick after a loss, you know, in a press conference, like it's on to the Cleveland game. It's on to the Cleveland game, you know, only it's, it's on to tax reform. It's on to tax reform. You know, they, they they either want to change the, the subject or or blame the press. They don't really have anything else to work with because he's going to blow up whatever they're they're. You know, if they have a full court press today, there's no telling how much he might have fucked it by like 9 a.m. by tweeting at, you know, 635. So yeah. they don't really want to venture anything. But as long as he's in power, that kind of like that obviates that, that, that removes some of that, you know, uh, responsibility, which is great. They love that. Everybody loves um, that. <laughs> another thing I want to ask you about is how screwed Pence is quickly becoming. Because he was kind of screwed before, but in an unknown cloud kind of way. And as we're getting more information, it seems like he's more and more screwed. Um, 
now shit i'm gonna kind of screw this up so please just jump in and correct me but michael flynn announced his intention to file as a foreign agent in like october or something and so because pence was the head of the transition team he absolutely should have known that and i think he came out in march in the in the media and said in an interview uh, on a news show that it was the first he was hearing of mike flynn registering as a foreign agent is that um it is categorically right false. He's so yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he's fucked. Like, it, yeah. So I mean, he's got. <laughs> so you know, he's been informed by Sally Yates. Um, Flynn himself had been issued something by like the DOJ or uh, saying like, you know, listen, you're you're in default of this registry. You need to take care of it. So he already knew. And like, literally, the text. Yeah. I mean, the actual memorandum that he sent is like bold and underlined on that account. Like literally in the text. Um, oh, that so Flynn, what that Flynn sent to the Trump uh, campaign? That, no, that was that, that was point. sent to Flynn. So he, you know, he can't oh, right, deny knowing it. Yep. And then he reported it to the Trump people, and yes. and, and he said, "I shouldn't do this." Last and he year. was holding out for like a different job, and then Trump yep. insisted on pressing him into the NSA position anyway. Um, you know, they, 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 yes, like they, there were multiple warnings to everybody involved. Pence is an extraordinarily bad liar. He's never been like that bright of a man. Uh, he's a good radio guy. I mean, so he's better than I am at that. But like, and I apologize to everybody. Uh, and like, that's it. Uh, yeah. And like, and I can't imagine like the Trump people, if, if he tries to like skate through and be like, well, I'll be president, you know, and, and you'll get impeached. Like those fuckers are going to turn on him. It's going to be like with the, when the, the Warner Brothers cartoon, like when it's like Daffy and, and Bugs in a lifeboat on the open ocean and, and like bugs looks at Daffy and he just turns into a fucking roast Turkey. It's going to be that like Pence is going to be a full Thanksgiving spread for, I mean, these guys are all in charge now and they can't stop knifing each other in the back. You know, that, that dude thinks he's going to skate. He's going to get shivved by like 22 people. (laughs) My God. So, (laughs) Damn man, like what's gonna what is gonna happen to Mike Pence? Is he gonna fight because um He's gonna was go home who, the mother. Yeah. But will he? Because um uh who was it? Lindsey Graham came out and has announced that in all likelihood this is a criminal investigation. And I mean if it is for anyone, it's gotta be for Pence. He's the guy he was literally the head of the transition team. He is the person who would have re- been receiving this information that Flynn um was about to it was a under investigation and b announced his intention to register as a foreign agent and they still put him in that position like he's he's right at the center so i mean i don't i don't know what the charge would be but could uh could pence go to jail as well i mean the theory like the one i kind of he perjured himself right like he did he said to the public from um i think he might have been on meet the press uh, he not- said that this is the first I've heard of it in, in response to the foreign agent thing with Mike Flynn in March. Well, that's, I mean, that's not court though, right? Like you can't prove yeah, yourself true, true. in front of MSNBC or whatever. Um, or no, it was <laughs> yeah. Brett Baer, you know? So, right. you know, it's, yeah, I mean, and like he can always claim that he misheard. I mean, the the, the two options that, that, that they have is for like, um, for, you know, for, for Trump and Pence is, is either, you know, deny everything or plead staggering ignorance. And I wouldn't mm. be surprised if they go for the latter for both of them. Um, mm. You know, like with everything in disarray, it's like, well, I wasn't adequately prepared by my team. You know, obviously I'm the head of the transition, but I rely on reports from other people. Uh, I didn't get that. 
and they have a lot yeah. of time to shred things. I mean, you know, this is going to be, you know, chaos, but like, yeah, he's tainted by all of it. So if Trump goes, I can't imagine how he, how he stays unless he can somehow, you know, com- paint himself to the press as this holy fool who just doesn't know shit about fuck. And but based on what you're president. saying, based on what you're saying, he does go home to mother instead of getting the pokey. Yeah, I don't. I mean, like we—it's America. We don't actually like send <laughs> we don't send white collar criminals to jail. Yeah, god damn it. Um, very good. All right, hey, well, let's take a short break now, Jeb, and uh, we'll come back and talk about the exciting world of net neutrality. Okay. The FCC's vote to implement strong net neutrality rules was an important victory for American consumers and for American business. And that victory demonstrated the overwhelming power of grassroots activism and civic participation. In 2014, millions, millions of Americans from across the political spectrum organized to ensure that their voices were heard and in the process they redefined civic engagement in our country well i'm sorry to say we're going to have to scrap the whole of that previous segment while we were on break three more people got indicted god damn it <laughs> welcome back to politics everybody that is the uh, the fast paced world we're living in right now and i want to talk about something that has been quite fast moving today and jeb and i are probably going to slightly fuck up in our discussion of it because it's a little bit hard um, to get your head around this unless you're really into it. But net neutrality is uh, an issue that is unfolding. Firstly, the principle of net neutrality is that all data on the internet should be treated equally and that internet service providers should not have an ability to be able to slow down data or speed up other data just because of where it's coming or what it relates to. So in a real-world example of this, um, you cannot have AT&T prioritize traffic going to YouTube servers so that the video you grab from YouTube appears faster, there's less buffering, you can get it in 4K, it's in better quality than if you were to get your video from, say, Vimeo because of some deal where YouTube gave AT&T a bunch of money. Um, the principle behind that is this is how monopolies occur and grow and be able to stifle competition in the marketplace they're able to use their massive war chests which they've accumulated to um, solidify their positions instead of actually having a better product than competitors in the marketplace and so the net neutrality argument centers around principles of how much involvement should the government have in being able to enforce that open playing field, that that open market, that um, even-keeled uh, environment that we can all put our products and, and services on. So uh, what happened today, and the reason this is back in the news, is the FCC uh, had a vote uh, to remove basically the broadband provisions away from Title II regulation. Now, Title II 
relates to um, a specific part of the Communications Act of 1934, whereby broadband was classified as something called a common carrier. And a common carrier is uh, something that all the people in the country use. Um, it's, its actual definition that I'm going to read to you from Wikipedia is a person or company that transports goods or people for any person or company and that is responsible for any possible loss of the goods during transport. A common carrier offers its services to the general public under license or authority provided by a regulatory body. Basically, from a legal point of view, it is something that is so important to the infrastructure of the country that the government feels it has to act as a sort of a legal guarantor to its um, correct usage and uh, sort of safe practice out in the marketplace. So it's things like mail and electricity and water. Um, These are important things that the government needs to get involved with so that people don't get screwed. Uh, So... We previously had the chairman of the FCC was a man called Tom Wheeler, um, who actually, when he first became the chairman, which from memory I think was in 2011, there was a big brouhaha about it. And most people who were sort of defenders of net neutrality, which I mean, if you think it's a niche topic to talk about now, back then no one was really thinking about it except for mega nerds. They were very fearful about what was coming down the pipe with Tom Wheeler because he was the head of two separate industry lobbies for the telecommunications industry. He had come from a very sort of a a private background, um, came into the role under Barack Obama and actually, much to pretty much everyone's surprise, championed principles of net neutrality and uh, in 2015 got broadband um, under Title II, reclassified as a common carrier, which gave it this protected status. Now, the chairman of the FCC under Donald Trump is a new guy called Ajit Pai, who has been made fun of extensively, uh, mainly because of his mug, um, his actual coffee mug, not his face, by John Oliver. Uh, and he's he's a he's an interesting dude. He's quite a weird dude. He's very easy to make fun of because he is quite odd. Um, but he is a guy who has put forward a more libertarian argument in defence of getting rid of a, what he would describe as a heavy-handed government approach to net neutrality. Basically, his argument goes that the marketplace should be allowed to operate. Um, how it wants it's it's all about free market forces being able to deliver the best product for consumers which i'm actually sympathetic to in some ways except for the fact that the broadband market particularly in america would we'll call it the internet market is so fucked and so far from a free market to begin with that i think these regulations need to go in to counteract the market position that things like AT&T have where so much of the American population do not have a choice in who their broadband provider is going to be. Ajit Pai's whole argument for having an open market and letting the market decide and the consumers being empowered to be able to um, choose where they're going to put their money and, and what ISP they're going to back based on their offerings, it kind of falls down when you don't have any choice in the marketplace. And that is the current internet environment in the states uh jeb feel free to jump in at any time if you want Um, i know that this isn't quite your area of expertise and nor mine to be honest but it's an interesting thing that's happening at the moment and kind of the 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 death bell is being rung at the moment for net neutrality based on this vote that happened today yeah so like the the thing that like for all listeners not in the united states united states has abysmal broadband um and Basically, the the way we get cable internet, the way we get broadband internet is because uh, usually about, you know, 40, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, um, 
basically uh, uh, local jurisdictions created monopoly, uh, provisional monopoly status to companies to lay cable because the government didn't want to pay for it. You know, nobody, you know, because people didn't have cable, you didn't necessarily know it was going to be a winner, you know, and, and, and uh, people who didn't want to watch TV weren't going to pay to underwrite laying cable for other people who wanted to pay extra to watch TV. After all, like you put up a fucking aerial and, you know, there were, there were only three networks and they all came through from the aerial on your house and that's all it cost. So uh, you, there, there were these sort of provisional monopolies created to lay the cable and then these companies got uh, a, like a bonus cost on leasing, you know, the, the use of these cables back to provide cable to everybody. What it has effectively created in almost every city in America is either a an absolute monopoly or a maybe a duopoly in some places. I don't know what the third one is, triopoly, I don't know. But usually the third option, if it exists, is sad. So like where I live, um, you can get, uh, you know, Fios Verizon, which because they went ahead and spent a ton of money to go ahead and lay it down on their own, or what was laid down originally, which is now managed by uh, Time Warner Cable. It's now called Spectrum. Uh, you might have heard the term Roadrunner. But, you know, in America, you've got basically uh, Fios uh, Time Warner slash Spectrum or Comcast. And that's it. Those are the, your three. And then you, if you live in like a random town, there might be like Dale's Cable that services <laughs> like a neighborhood. But uh, yeah. the effect is that you pay this, you know, you, you know, they offer different services, but you pay pretty much the same rate. You have no choice. They, they say that you get, you know, this many megabits up and down. You never do. It never comes anywhere close. There is no consumer accountability in that regard. Um, the neighborhood that I live in, uh, was not originally wired for fiber optics. So we had cable uh, and they just never made an attempt to boost the signal here. So when kids co- kids come home every day, uh, if you're watching a streaming movie, that will grind to a halt because they come home and they start yeah. playing video games. Um, and, and, and there, there hasn't really- been the incentive for the industry to pick its shit up off the ground and invest in that infrastructure and allow people to get... Um, higher speeds and more reliable services and just to tack on what you were mentioning before like in a lot of america how you do have one or two or three options and that sort of can be viewed as a a, a duopoly it's also kind of a cartel because there have been a lot of uh, cases that have come to light where really like probably illegal business practices are going on where various bits of the country are being carved out individually by these top tier um, ISPs like Comcast who will go, look, you can have this part of the West Coast if we're allowed to have these cities here and we won't compete on each other's ground so we can both screw the consumer to the max and make a shit ton of money. Like that stuff is going on right now. Well, and, and a lot of that too is the effect of when the 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 uh, they were given like, let's say a charter to install this, right? It was on, done on a county government by county government basis. So like you can go from let's say Tampa, Florida, which is roadrunner territory, and then you cross over into Sarasota County and boom, everybody has Comcast. Just because that's who, you know, or Comcast maybe bought it from whatever the local provider initially made the outlay. Whatever the case, none of these companies have any interest in spending money on that kind of physical infrastructure. Uh, it's extraordinarily costly and the cost, the, the you know, it's paid back, it's amortized over time. And what they've done is essentially sort of locked prices. And if they go more expensive and you happen to have that duopoly there, as soon as somebody's contract is up, they'll just switch to the other one. So it's yeah. almost like somebody's waiting to force their hand. And of course, the Republican response is to not do that at all, but instead to find another way to monetize this existing digital infrastructure where, you know, you can pay extra to 
you know, prioritize your data packets and and deprioritize others, which will let you know inevitably lead to the de-democratization of the internet. God. <laughs> <laughs> and Archie Pai is claiming that that won't happen, that we won't see that. But I think you only need to have a rudimentary understanding of economics to see that that's exactly what will come down the pipe and in not even that long an amount of time. We're already seeing little bits of the principles of net neutrality being chipped away. I'm in Australia at the moment, um, and actually we've got this in New Zealand as well, where certain uh, mobile carriers here won't charge you for streaming Spotify data or um, they won't charge you for Netflix data. And T-Mobile did a similar thing a couple of years ago in the States and probably still have the plan. And um, even that, though, for some people, it's not strictly considered anti-net neutrality. It is sort of against the spirit of net neutrality in that it is getting data coming from one particular service or company and giving it special treatment over data coming from another. And Mm -hmm. one of the beautiful things that has allowed the internet to flourish and become this incredibly dynamic space that offers so many crazy weird services in such a short amount of time is the fact that people could get on there and it was the strength of the idea which would gain it popularity you didn't need a huge amount of infrastructure because everything was just there when Sir Tim, uh, what's his name, Uh, Berners-Lee, the guy who kind of is credited with created the World Wide Web, when he first um, sort of built the infrastructure of it, he had the option to charge money for its use and he made the physical decision to not do that. He could have been probably richer than Bill Gates at this point, but he didn't do it because he understood these principles of not stifling an open environment where a good idea would get ahead and people could build on that idea and they could you know, have open discussion about what service would come next and collaborate together and not be tied down by someone having a faster speed or a better ability to provide a service just by virtue of being able to pay money to the ISPs. And like... While I do get, the the libertarian in me does see what Ajit Pai is saying, and I do understand his argument. I just think that the, the internet market in the States is so fucked that certain steps do need to be taken to at least protect its position from not getting more fucked than it already is right now, and hopefully start to unwind just how fucked it is. And in terms of market forces, Google is actually a pretty good example of a service that is forcing a lot of these big companies' hands. But we can't keep relying on these huge corporations to hopefully come in and fill these voids. Because if if Google hadn't started throwing their gigabit connections around in um, just random towns and cities to try and take on the Comcasts of the world, there would be no movement. And there's examples all across America where these big fat ISPs have just been creaming people with shitty services and high bills for years and years and years. And then Google announces that they're bringing a gigabit connection in and suddenly they start changing their plans to be more competitive. And it does, it takes that. And that's a wonderful thing. And that's how free markets work. But in the case of the broadband market in america it's so fucked at the moment that to rely on a big corporation to accidentally provide some altruism and competition in the market it's just like the stakes are too high and i don't have a huge amount of faith in government agencies to be able to regulate everything but this just seems like one of those places where sensible regulation needs to prevail and it's not going to because of the ideology of the government that's in charge at the moment
Well, and the other thing is, you know, if you're relying on these companies to create this, those are the exact same companies that will stand to have the most direct benefit from the erosion of something like net, net neutrality, right? If you have the money to sink into mass infrastructural projects to, you know, extend, uh, you know, inexpensive Wi-Fi to everybody, you're also the, you know, the, the company that has the wherewithal to buy a lot of lobbyists and say, you know, listen, we did you this favor, so we get priority preferential treatment. And once you kind of start introducing those exceptions, then they start to come down like dominoes. And like the the other thing I just kind of want to do to contextualize this is like if you listen to the rhetoric about why net neutrality needs to go, it is the exact same rhetoric against Obamacare. Like it's the same Orwellian can't. And it's that's a an indicator of like how blatantly evil it is. But B, it's an indicator of just how banal it is as well. Right. Because if we get yeah. rid of net neutrality, you're going to have more services and more options. And if we get rid of Obamacare, you'll have more services and more options. Like these people will be incentivized to come in the marketplace and give you more things. Fuck no, they aren't, right? Like at every, <laughs> yeah. at, at every the reason why Obamacare was created was because the insurance company said, hey, listen, we have no interest in losing money on insuring sick people, which yeah. is the point of fucking health insurance is spending money on sick people. So they devised all these ways to get around it. Likewise, you've had these these permissible monopolies for decades that said, we have no net interest in providing you more goods or services because we can agree to essentially charge the same prices for the same substandard service. Because the same the question with, with insurance is, are you going to pay more for this shit that doesn't pay out when you get sick? Uh, and Or are you going to die? And the other and question is, are you going to pay more for this shit that like prioritizes... Comcast and NBC Universal and YouTube and all this, these other packets of data over you, or are you never going to go on the internet again? And they know yeah. you don't have a choice. So it's that, you know, you can eat shit or you can die. Which one do you want to do? <laughs> and it can seem like melodrama to link um, people's access to uh, free and open internet to healthcare. But I mean, it's like, We've only just gotten to the point where the public's starting to understand now, the general public, how important internet is to our everyday lives and that this is actually a fight worth having and not just some nerd shit that all the geeks are talking about. So let, let, let me let me liken it to one more concrete thing. Right. And because, yeah, you, you maybe you don't know about this. And, and certainly I don't know if New Zealand's going through anything similar. Um, the U.S. Postal Service has a budget crisis now. The reason why it has a budget crisis is because the lame duck Republican Congress in 2006 that had just gotten walloped by the Democrats decided to create a budget crisis. And they said that the the uh, uh, pension system for the USPS had to be fully funded over the next 50 years. Now, like no other government agency in America is required to be fully funded. So by doing that, suddenly 50 years of debt, full debt manifested on its books that it no longer had, you know, because suddenly it had this expense it never had before. Um, hmm. And that immediately, because the the Postal Service was in crisis, Im immediately engendered conversations about how best to compensate for that. And the, the first one is, well, let's privatize it. Uh, and the example is, well, look, look how inexpensive it is to use UPS or use FedEx. Well, the reason why UPS and FedEx are competitive is because the U.S. Postal Service is there. You know, as soon as it's yeah, gone, yeah. they can jack up the prices. As soon as you remove yeah. that kind of, and the USPS, this is a fucking marvel of government and engineering. If you live within a zip code that's designated, if you don't, you know, you may have to drive into a post office. But if you live within a zip code, you will pay the exact same rate anywhere in the continental United States for anything within the exact same weight and postage class. And if you, you know, a first class piece of mail, 
You know, when I grew yeah. up, it was like 25 cents. Now it's, I mean, I don't know. I buy forever stamps now, right? But like- <laughs> Old you know, man Lund over here. Like you you can be anywhere in the US and it will show up at the, you know, the, the address in two days. That's tremendous. And it's a reminder of like what government does for people in a good way. And like people have a positive association with the fact that there's a mailbox there that they can use to communicate anywhere in the world. And their piece of mail is no more or less valuable than anyone else's unless they spend a bunch of money like to, to make it so. But like the standard first class data packet, a letter, is treated equally, right? And this so basically like the whole net neutrality thing is part of a larger umbrella of let us attack public services let us attack this idea that everybody is democratically entitled to certain things by basically coming up with a bunch of of, of fake talking points about how they're not getting even better services and once you remove that democratizing element and that in in one very basic case stabilizes prices and services and gives people a very concrete idea of what they are guaranteed the minute you mm. can do that you can step in as a private company and go you know actually um you know not wet mail is bonus mail <laughs> so you're going to need to spend five dollars extra per month so yeah. it doesn't show up looking like cottage cheese you know because yeah. there's no longer going to be a competitor as a guarantor i mean there's- the same thing you can go like examples with the national rail as soon as they privatize rail in england you know, the, the price is shot up, the services diminish because, you know... The, oh, the, we've got an amazing yeah. history in New Zealand of that happening. Every time um, a centre-right government comes in, they sell, they sell the rail service. And then as soon as we get our centre-left government, because everyone got bored, um, we have to buy it back at a huge loss and then revamp it all because it just fell to ashes under the stewardship of the private market which put no money into reinvesting into their infrastructure yeah it's a good analogy and that yeah. is um yeah, it's so just they, they change the buzzwords but it's the same idea that like you know it is, it is the a government guaranteeing idea. a service to you is a bad idea because the government because the government is technically you doesn't have a you know a vested interest in fucking you the way yeah, a company but, does. Uh, and and look i don't have a huge amount of faith in the government to undertake massive projects. But the whole argument of having a baseline of services across the board for really important shit like healthcare and broadband that people can kind of start at. This is the government mandated basement on services and then work your way up above that, I, I think is kind of a good idea. So um, this vote has happened. Uh, it, it's just a vote in the FCC commission. So this isn't like a rule change just yet. There's going to be a 90-day comment period. Um, there was a huge comment period preceding this vote, uh, mm-hmm. which the FCC, from what it looks like, completely fucked up. Um, they they stopped taking comments after uh, a little while after John Oliver set up the um, Go FCC Yourself automated form website referral service uh, to, I think their wording was, we are going to um, stop taking public comments and reflect for a time. Well, part of that was because uh, somebody set up bots that was registering people without their consent uh, opposing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like opposing net neutrality in general, not supporting, you know, not opposing the movement to end net neutrality. So there's like somebody, somebody with some money set it up. So a bunch of citizens were going, we hate this. Uh, So that was fun. And yeah, (laughs) anyway, that's sort of where it's at at the moment. You're probably going to find a more credible uh, boiling down of that somewhere else, but that's our take on it. Um, Let's not have another break, Jeb, because we've been going really long, but I just want to touch on the last big thing that's happened the last couple of days, which is the passing of Roger Ailes, who uh, created the Fox News Network. And it was interesting because I was messaging you about this earlier today, and uh, 
I, I said to you, do you want to do like a, um, a Roger Ailes obituary? And you said that is um, a ghoulish approach to a man dying. And you know what? You're fucking right, Jeb. I've been <laughs> so caught up in how we sort of talk about this shit, the zeitgeist of discussing figures on the right and conservative media figures, that it is easy to forget sometimes that these are people with flesh and blood and families and a man has just died. Um, And there have been a lot of very powerful pieces, uh, some of which I've read in places like Rolling Stone, um, about what a bad man he was and what a terrible legacy he has left behind for us and basically... Uh, fertilize the ground for figures like Trump to take the reins on a sort of a um, a field of um, bad information and uh, hysteria and you know just fear, basically fostering fear everywhere. But what is your take on Roger Ailes' legacy and the fact that he is he has died now? Well, first of all, like the ghoulish thing, it was more, you know, anytime somebody in the right dies, because uh, I did a couple of good uh, obituary pieces with my friend Dan O'Sullivan, uh, people are like, hey, I want you, you know, I need you to spit on this guy's grave right now. And yeah. it's, it's work. I mean, like the first one we did for love of the, the, the sport and, you know, uh, because there was also, we, we wrote one about Andrew Breitbart called Big Deal, Big Coronary, Big Corpse. Um, but that's because God. like, Everybody was giving this guy a blowjob and this guy was fucking scum. And yeah. and it was like, no, 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 he doesn't get away with it. You know, Ailes isn't going to get away with it. Everybody considers him scum. The man was fucking poison. I don't care. He has a family and they miss him. Fuck him. Fuck them. I don't care. Like, they, you know, if you live with this guy and you didn't know he was an asshole, you're part of the fucking problem. More to the point, like, you know, are, are you a black guy in America? You know, you probably have a family. Well, Roger Ailes didn't give a shit what happened to you. Like I've never heard it, you know, apology from Roger Ailes to any person of color that he based whose lives he made hell for the last twenty years. Uh, yeah. So no, fuck him. I mean, like this guy, and not right. to mention, not to mention the fact that he was in all likelihood um, a sexual abuser as well for fifty years. Let's put mm-hmm. it. I mean, like put it in perspective. He he has been har- sexually harassing and probably sexually assaulting. Uh, women since he worked as a producer on the Mike Douglas show in the 60s. He took the experience that he learned there um, to sell uh, Richard Nixon. So you can go read Joe McGinnis's book, The Selling of the President. Ailes basically came up with, and this is something that they used with Reagan and then they've used with Trump extensively and it's become part of the Republican playbook. He filled these these pre-selected audiences with a, a telegenically diverse group and then had people with uh, certain questions already set up that were right within Nixon's wheelhouse. Nixon got full TV makeup and everything so he didn't look sweaty and awful. He went out there and he seemed to be interacting with the crowd, but what he was doing was he was interacting with plants. At the end of it, those people were ushered past journalists so that it was difficult for journalists to figure out how real they were. Uh, you know, it was basically these little Potemkin villages of Americana where Nixon would, would appeal to this you know demographic cross-section and look good. That helped to get him elected. Uh, in the 70s, he was part of a project that was uh, attempting to syndicate news for a right-wing news service because in the late 60s is basically when this this whole right-wing machine was ginned up. Uh, very, very quite literally on the principle that uh, conservative ideas cannot withstand the scrutiny of math and historicity. So we have to create this entirely hermetic little existence where this shit can be real and seem real. So he tried that <laughs> and it failed. Uh, he then in the... Um, he was an advisor 
to uh, the George H.W. Bush campaign, and that was the one with um, Lee Atwater and the Willie Horton ads. And it was one of the most explicitly nauseating race-baiting campaigns in modern history. Um, and then he went and he helped uh, when MSNBC was was uh, founded. He I, I think his show was called like America's Talking and created a couple of shows there. They didn't do well. Uh, he also, again, like displayed like the same nauseating um, uh, interpersonal behavior there he had ever, anywhere else. And then he was finally, finally hired by Rupert Murdoch. And, and he's the reason why America and uh, has Hannity and O'Reilly. And there, you know, he, he basically used the, the institutional power of Fox News to protect people like O'Reilly. I mean, this is the joke, like, you know, conservatives are great with money and they make, you know, smart, responsible decisions. This guy has been shuffling millions of dollars around since the early 2000s to make complaints that his talent and he himself can't stop hand fucking the women go away because I guess News Corp would much rather waste that money disappearing lawsuits than, I don't know, just hire somebody who's semi-competent who doesn't try to rape people. So like, you know, and I mean, okay, Ailes didn't try to rape people. He just sort of videotaped them and then, you know, like psychologically manipulated them for years and years and years. And he did install uh, glass desks at Fox News and said, I'm not paying you to wear slacks to the women. So they started mm -hmm. wearing the short skirts. I mean, like created this hostile very emotionally and, and, and psychologically and professionally violating atmosphere. Maybe didn't cross that final frontier, but, uh, you know, anyway, fuck him. Uh, like, he, you know, if you, if you were a Muslim in America, if you were Latino in America, if you were black in America, if you were gay or trans in America. Uh, or if your you're life, a woman in America. If you're a woman in America, all of you, your life is worse because this man lived. Wow. So the ghoulish bit you're referring to was just me getting you to write it down, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you were quite fine to do that off the cuff. No, good like, stuff um no that was good you can't improve on that jeb i just want to mention a couple of other really quick things before we go uh number one this WannaCry worm that infected um a lot of windows xp systems around the world not least of which uh was the nhs the healthcare system uh in the uk because it's such an outdated computer system <laughs> i thought you what? were gonna say this is completely com unrelated I, I thought you were gonna say like not least of which is my computer <laughs> fuck no <laughs> Absolutely. How dare you? I have the most up-to-date tech. No, Windows 10 all around for Timbo. Um, but it has been an interesting real-time I told you so by a lot of people who when the Vault 7 leaked happened, which was the accumulation of all of the cyber weapons that the NSA had accrued and put into one place inside their, um, you know, their repository. Uh, someone had broken into that. A hacker managed to get that, and then these uh, uh, an organization called the Shadow Brokers leaked it. And Vault 7 was this big leak of all of these different tools that came out all at once, and it was only a matter of time before they got weaponized and used. And some of them had already. This is the most high-profile one that's happened so far. People like Ed Snowden, who was advocating for the NSA not stockpiling these weapons, but instead, when you find a vulnerability, the NSA really should have been... Um, telling people like Microsoft how to patch them, that this vulnerability existed instead of sitting on it so that they could weaponize it for their own needs. Because, I mean, information wants to be free. This kind of stuff will get out. Um, and so it was kind of inevitable that this shit was going to happen. And this is the first big public version that we've seen of it. It will certainly not be the last. This is probably, you can put a flag in the ground and say that this is the start of a new age of these cyber weapons starting to really fuck with um, the public rather than just 
state actors who um, we sort of hear about these reports of attacks happening but don't really have an understanding of how it works. This is probably going to change now. Uh, another bit of news is that Chelsea Manning has um, been released from prison now. Uh, she's she's free and you can follow her on social media and I have been and it's just fantastic she's posting photos of her eating pizza and um, she posted a selfie up on Instagram and it's just like it's it's an incredible thing to see what this person looks like in the life that they're going to start living now and it's quite uplifting um, for someone like me who considers uh, Chelsea Manning a hero um, it's it's like this is a historic thing and I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it and I think that it's yeah it's a, it's a tremendous thing and a bit of good news off the back of all this other bullshit that's happening um, there is good stuff out there so go and follow Chelsea Manning on on uh, Twitter and Instagram and just follow that journey along when you need something to intersperse your impeachment uh, hot takes for the day. So on I, that I, note, Jeb, do, do you want to add anything at the end? Yeah, I have two announcements myself. Uh, one, uh, yeah, mm. I, the Chelsea Manning selfie was good. You know, like, uh, you know, yeah. she, lo- she looks good. She looks happy. Uh, the pizza was dire. That was bad pizza, <laughs> man. That was not. Like, so comparative. That's like, I mean, that, that genuine, like that piece of pizza, I looked at that and I was like, yeah, I would eat that only if I just left prison. Um, <laughs> but I do, have an, I do have an announcement just sort of like unrelated to the hack. Um, my new uh, venture capital uh, uh I got some VC money uh, for a startup. It's called iSlice. It's uh, it's an Internet of Things product. What it does is it connects your block of knives in your kitchen to the World Wide Web. Can't see why anything would go wrong with that. In fact, we're gonna we're gonna start connecting the internet to everything in your house. Uh-huh. Uh, so you can if like, it's got a blade, we want it connected, huh? Yeah, like I mean, you can if you're you know like the Afghan that you kind of throw over the back of your couch. It's a little crooked. You can move it a couple inches from work. I mean, you basically just need to wire everything in your house because there's not going to be any comeuppance. There's not going to be any blowback, uh, especially because the you know in a couple of years the internet is only going to be in three percent of households of the richest local dukes and shire reeves in America. Well, Jim, if you're going to um, waste your chance to promote your own real life things that are out there, I'm going to promote it on your behalf. There's a great piece that Jeb's just written for Esquire that came out on Mother's Day called My Mom Was My Best Friend and I Was Kind of a Dick. And it is charming and wonderful. And I highly recommend everyone Google and read it right now. Um, and you can follow the rest of Jeb's writing on Jeb Lund's Word Salad on Facebook. Why, thank you. And, and after you've done that, uh, please check out The Worst Idea of All Time, uh, which is Tim's other podcast. It's most famous one. It's in its victory lap season. Is that correct? Yeah, fucking Zach Efron is in Sydney right now doing a junket for Baywatch, and I didn't realize. So we're in the same city, and uh, I've, I think I, I, don't, I don't know if I can get in on the junket at this point in time. I think we've probably left it a bit late to tee that up, but I'm gutted. We're so close yet so far. <sighs> Well, I mean, you anyway. I should let you go. I mean, you got to get go steal some golf carts and just sort of like yeah, swarm them. That's what you want to do. Yeah. Swarm. I'll go and do that. So we'll catch you guys soon. Um, and uh, you can follow me at Tim underscore bat on Twitter. You can follow me at Mobute, M-O-B-U-T-E on Twitter. And we'll catch you again, hopefully in one week's time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, this Fox News alert, Roger Ailes has passed away. If you only know of him what you've read in recent months, then you didn't know him. Yes, he had his faults. We all do. I prefer to remember that Roger Ailes was generous, hilarious, and a genius. And if you enjoy the Fox News channel, you have Roger to thank for that. 